Please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, that is page 799 in the black Bibles that are provided there. Our study through the Minor Prophet book of Zechariah concludes today as we come to the last chapter. Chapter 14 is the end of this final oracle that began in chapter 12 that Zechariah is delivering now to the returned exiles there in Jerusalem after they've completed the rebuilding of the temple. Again, this is some 500 years before Christ would come. And as we begin our, our message today, I want to pose a couple of questions to you. What must we remember today as believers? What must we remember when we look out and we see evil flourishing, we see Christians suffering, whether it be through persecution, whether it be through trials, what truths do we need to remember and, and preach to ourselves? Similarly, what is our hope today? What is our hope as we daily and hourly battle the world, the flesh, and the devil? What is our hope? What truths do we remember well, we could sum it all up with this, and, and again, I, can't, I got this from a, our, our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago, right? But it's the, it's the great truth, the biblical truth, the good news that Jesus wins, right? That Jesus is king of all and that he wins. He wins in the end. Christ has already secured the final victory that will be his. And we're going to see that truth proclaimed today in Zechariah 14. The title of the message today is King Over All. King Over All. Look at verse 9 of chapter 14. It summarizes the chapter. It describes the final outcome of history. You want to know where history is going? Well, look at verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Jesus is king over all. This chapter, chapter 14, is about Christ and his kingdom. Again, this is written some 500 years before Christ, so it's looking forward to to Jesus coming even the first time and rescuing his people and ruling over all. Now, as we begin, I have to say that this chapter is a tricky chapter to interpret as far as some of the details because of its apocalyptic language and because of its dual fulfillment. The New Testament applies the language and the images that are used in this chapter to both the first and the second comings of Christ. So we, we have kind of this now and not yet, an already and not yet type of vibe going on as we go through this chapter. Because, and that makes sense, right? Because it's about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has been inaugurated through Jesus' death and resurrection. So the kingdom of God is present already. But the kingdom of God will not be fully realized until his return. And so that's his second coming. And so that's why we say the kingdom of God is not yet. It's already present, but it's not yet completed. And, and we, we talk, we've talked about that before. We see that in the Gospels when Jesus w- 
came to earth and he's bringing in the kingdom, right? Remember when he's casting out demons, he says, if I do this by the Holy Spirit, or Luke, Luke's uh, uh, account says, if I do this by the finger of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the kingdom of God is present already, but it's not yet complete, and that's what this chapter is talking about. So challenges aside, of, as far as the, some of the details, don't lose sight of the central truth of this chapter, that Jesus is king over all, and that Jesus wins. You could summarize the chapter this way, and these are s- similar themes that we've seen throughout Zechariah, maybe with a few more details now, but you could summarize the chapter this way. God will return to Jerusalem, his people, defeat all his enemies, be recognized as the one true king, and cleanse the land and his people so that they might worship him in all his holiness. That's the summary to the chapter. God will return to Jerusalem, his people, defeat all his enemies, be recognized as the one true king, and cleanse the land and his people so that they may worship him in all his holiness. Okay, so that's the big idea of the chapter, and I want to work through it together with you today under several headings. And again, some of these headings will have an initial fulfillment in the salvation that Christ secured for us at his first coming, But all of the headings will be fully and finally fulfilled at his second coming. All right? So there's several today, but they're they're in small chunks. So we're just going to kind of move through them quickly. But if you're taking notes, they won't be hard to write down. In verses 1 and 2, we have our first heading. Evil oppression. Evil oppression. God's people are oppressed by evil. We see that again in verses 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will, he's talking about the people of God being, being overrun and, and, and uh, plundered, right? For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the horses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So these verses describe Jerusalem being attacked by God's enemies. This is not another battle separate from chapter 12, what we saw last time that we were in Zechariah. In chapter 12, 2 and 9, this is a, a, the same account, just from a, a, an additional perspective here. This is talking about the nations attacking Jerusalem, God's people, which certainly happened often in the Old Testament physically, right? But the Bible uses that kind of language now spiritually, talking about the, the spiritual forces of evil gathering against the Lord and against his anointed one. Remember, chapters 12 through 14 is all one oracle. So as we saw in chapter 12, the nations gather against God's people. And here this attack is described in terms that they would understand that 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 definitely um, hit home for them in a special way. Because it's described in, in similar terms to what happened to Jerusalem earlier at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Verse 2 says this future attack on God's people is, is the Lord's initiative, right? We've seen that truth before about God's sovereign hand in all of this. Notice it says, the, the Lord says, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. And while the reason is not explicitly given here, we saw last time in chapter 13 that, that through this suffering, a true remnant will remain and will be refined for God's glory. So evil oppression 
And again, this has happened throughout history since the fall, right? Part of the, the effects of the fall is God said the seed of the serpent will rage against God's people. In the first century, think about when Christ came. The Jews were longing for God to send his promised king to rescue them from their Roman occupiers. But we know their greater need, their their greatest need was to be saved from sin and evil. And today Christians still suffer under evil, right? Persecution. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters in Nigeria and in China and the Middle East. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 tells us. Our salvation is sure, our future resurrection guaranteed, but currently we still live in this fallen world where where we deal with sin and suffering. Trials, temptations, sorrow, sin, persecution, and death oppress us. We still battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we too... In between Christ's comings here, we too eagerly await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can uh, resonate with the, the, the feel, the, the theme, the mood here. So that was evil oppression. That leads us to our second heading here in verses 3 through 5. Powerful rescue. Powerful rescue. The Lord, once again, we see it declared for us here. The Lord powerfully rescues his people. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Oh, what a great truth that is we see throughout Scripture. God hears the desperate cries of his people. God sees, he knows, he cares about their suffering. And so God goes out from heaven and fights for his people. Look at verse 4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Again, it's interesting the, the, the terminology that's being used here uh, because earlier, uh, the earlier prophets like uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, when the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in Jerusalem, when they were about to be judged by the Babylonians because of their breaking the covenant. In Ezekiel's vision, he described the glory of the Lord departing from the temple and standing on the mountain. And now here, once again, God, through Zechariah, is describing it exactly in the reverse saying that the glory of the Lord or the Lord himself is now returning from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, to his people, restoring them, delivering them. Notice God shall stand on the Mount of Olives and it shall split in two from east to west. That verb split, interestingly, is the same verb that's used to describe the parting of the Red Sea way back in Exodus 14. Verse 21, this shows or suggests at least that this deliverance at Jerusalem is like another Exodus-type salvation. Again, using terminology that would resonate with them. When God comes to save his people, he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. Verse 5, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains. It's describing their escape, their salvation here. For the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azale, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. 
So the valley that's formed between the Mount of Olives will become an escape route that extends to Azael, a place we don't know where it is, somewhere east of Jerusalem. And this, this future escape is, just, is like an event that occurred 200 years earlier in the days of Uzziah. And after providing this salvation for the people, the Lord returns to Jerusalem with his holy ones, either his angels or, or those, that remnant, that have been refined through this, through this suffering. But what I want us to see is the Bible uses some of this same apocalyptic imagery and signs to describe what happened at Jesus' death. According to Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54, when Jesus died on the cross, the earth shook, the rocks split in an earthquake, and many bodies of the saints were raised and went into the holy city. That was an example of the, of the Lord God coming in the flesh to rescue his people. Jesus coming and living and dying on the cross in our place. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has provided a powerful rescue for all who believe. Our Lord Jesus Christ has defeated our enemies of sin, death, and Satan through his life, death, and resurrection. He's already provided that powerful rescue, and many of us, by God's grace, have experienced that. Like a mortally wounded dragon, Satan and his minions still thrash around wreaking havoc, but their final doom is sure. Satan, the strong man, has been bound and his house of captives is being plundered by Christ. Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations. The gospel is going forth to the nations and by God's sovereign grace, all kinds of people are believing in Christ. All kinds of people from all types of false religions are uh, trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior and being brought into the kingdom of Christ. As Christians, we are still engaged in a serious battle. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness, but now we're still engaged in that battle. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6.12 says. And so while we feel that battle and we're engaged in that battle and we get weary in that battle, we have the sure promise that Christ is coming again and that at his return he will once again powerfully rescue us and this time once and for all from evil. Think of the Christ's second coming as we've already sung. When Christ comes in power and great glory, what a powerful rescue that will be. There'll be a final battle as the forces of evil gather to oppose Christ and his people. But Jesus will easily defeat Satan and his armies and will throw them all into the lake of fire where they'll be punished forever and ever. Hold your place there in Zechariah 14, but turn ahead to Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. We're going to be in Revelation a, a few different times today. That's page 1040 if you're using the Black Bibles. As we see the ultimate fulfillment of this at Christ's second coming, Revelation 19 describes the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as he comes to rescue his people. Verse 11 of Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
Here's our Lord. Here's our rescuer. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords." Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their rider, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in his who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. In the next chapter, we read of the final judgment of Satan. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, I declare to you, loved ones, Jesus wins in the end. Our Lord Jesus is coming again and he will powerfully rescue his people once and for all from evil. Amen. Now in verses 6 through 8, we come to our third heading, new creation. New creation, verses 6 through 8, the Lord ushers in a new creation. Zechariah describes it, verse 6, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. The Lord's return brings in a new created order, and, and this just drips with blessing, right? What represented blessing and life in an arid, dry land? What represented blessing and life to people who knew what it was, or at least had heard what it was, to have a siege built around them, cutting off their water? <laughs> it's water, right? Water, living water, always flowing, represents life and blessing, salvation. Zechariah points out two characteristics of this new creation. Continual light, continual water. Not just, oh, some rainy season, let's store it all up, and then in summer it goes dry, 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 dry. No, it's going to continue in summer as in winter. Continual water. Living water, not stagnant water, fresh, life-giving water. We can relate to how precious that is, how needed that is. Continual light and life-giving water. Who does that make you think of? Jesus, the light of the world, has rescued us from the domain of darkness. He has given us new hearts from which flow springs of living water. John seven thirty-eight. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has already initiated the new creation. 
And remember, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's going to reverse everything that has been affected by the curse of sin. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. We have already been spiritually raised with Christ. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We have new hearts that love God. We've been set free from bondage. We've already been spiritually raised with Christ and one day we'll be physically raised with him when he returns in perfect glorified bodies. And at his return, at his second coming, Jesus will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. A perfect physical environment, no longer groaning under the effects of the fall. Listen to how the Bible describes this, this final kingdom. Revelation 7, 17, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 20, verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Jerusalem, the the bride, the people of God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Then you skip down to Revelation 20, verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, but the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, By its light will the nations walk and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. Continual light from the glory of God. Chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. That's our future. The new heavens and the new earth with our God. Continual light. Living water. No more sin, no more effects of the fall at all in us or around us. We'll worship him and enjoy his glory forever. New creation. Then in verse 9, we have heading number 4, universal reign. Universal reign. This was the verse I began with today, right? And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. This is the climax of Zechariah's vision of the future. And we know that Jesus is king over all now. His victory over sin and death and Satan declare that he is king over all. Remember those, those uh, well-known words in Matthew 28, 18. The risen Lord Christ declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Ephesians 1 talks about how he has been seated high above all rule and power and authority. Jesus is king over all now. Christ has established his kingdom. And it is a kingdom that will last forever. His kingdom is a kingdom that no evil can take down. He rules now from his heavenly throne at the Father's right hand. I say it again. 
Jesus is king over all now. Though presently, many rebel against his rule. But one day, all rebellion will be snuffed out. When our Lord Jesus returns and defeats his enemies and eradicates evil, then the triune God will enjoy universal, unopposed rule and reign. What a day that will be, right? When there's no one else opposing our Lord's reign. Revelation 11.15 says... Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's no more rebellious kingdoms, there's no no more pockets of, of sin. It's all Christ, it's all the Father, Son, and Spirit reigning. When Christ returns, all evil will be eradicated. All false false gods, all idolatry will be banished forever. On that day, going back to verse 9 of Zechariah 14, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. On that final day, we will all declare that the triune God is the only God. He is unique. There's no one else like him. Our great God will reign unopposed forever and ever and ever, right? Universal reign. Verses 10 through 11 give us our fifth heading. Sanctified and secure. Sanctified and secure. Verse 10, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. So you've got this picture of, of, Jerus- of other things going flat and Jerusalem being elevated. At Christ's second coming, the earth will be transformed. Jerusalem will be elevated from its surrounding territory. Verse 11. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Remember, they were not, in the not too distant past of Zechariah's hearers. They had seen Jerusalem wiped out. They would seen its streets empty. They would seen it desolate. But now, he's pointing them to the future and saying one day it will be inhabited Never again will there be a decree of utter destruction. That's the Hebrew word that in Deuteronomy is associated with uh, removal of the Canaanites from the promised land. And so what God's doing here is he's talking about how he's going to cleanse the land of all sin, of all idolatry, of everyone that's opposed to, to the Lord. And so that, what does that leave? <laughs> that leaves Christ and his people. And that's security. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Having been cleansed, it will be inhabited by the holy ones and shall dwell in security. Jerusalem, God's people, shall be sanctified and secure. And again, Revelation 21 speaks of this, doesn't it? Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, a bride dressed in fine linen, white and pure, it said in an earlier chapter. Revelation 21, 25, speaking of the city, its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. That sounds pretty secure, doesn't it? You don't need to shut the gates of your city. (laughs) They will bring into it, verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the end will be glorified, sanctified, fully set apart for the Lord. All evil will be eradicated. What a a security that will be. What a blessing that will be to be able to worship God in pure holiness with all the saints. No more threat of evil. No more temptations to lure us away. No one else rebelling against our Lord. Then in verses 12 through 13, further details are given about how God will fight against the nations who have come to wage war against Jerusalem. I call this this heading final judgment, verses 12 through 15. Again, some more details here. Some things we've already kind of talked about. But verse 12, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Just describing utter defeat. Instant judgment. Verse 13, and on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. They're going to be the ones plundered, not God's people anymore. Gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. You see, you understand what's happening here? The the final judgment, God's victory is being described in terms that they understand. God's using pictures of God's judgment throughout history. The plagues that fell upon Egypt. How many times do we read of God striking fear in, in his enemies so that they're actually fighting one another? They're all messed up and panicked and confused, right? At Christ's return, his enemies will be, what these verses are reminding us is, at Christ's return, his enemies will be decisively and utterly defeated. They're going to be pulverized and plundered. Heading number seven. We have in verses 16 through 19. I called it two outcomes. Verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go, does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be 
the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booze. Remember I said last time how sometimes in, in prophecies, right, the, the, the events get scrunched together. What we know now on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, things that happen the first Things that happen at Christ's first coming are distinct from things that will happen at his second coming, right? But to the prophet's eyes, they all appeared as one thing. What we have here is having seen this powerful deliverance of God, the survivors have a choice. Right? They've seen God powerfully deliver his people, and so now the kind of the ball is in their court. Will they worship God? Will they, in terms this term, keep the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles? Will they join these festivals in going and worshiping God and declaring He is the one true God? Or will they rebel and be punished? And, and again, we think about it, this was the opportunity throughout Israel's history. This was kind of the, the, the fork in the road throughout Israel's history, Right? When God would powerfully act, people that saw that had a choice. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the Egyptians. We just talked about plagues, right? When God was bringing all the plagues on Egypt, we, we read that there were actually some Egyptians that joined the Israelites in getting out of there, right? By God's grace, some of them saw, man, you know what? Your God just defeated all of our so-called gods, <laughs> and so we're joining you guys. And, and, and you see that throughout history, right? When we went through Joshua, there were, you know, there was Rahab, there was, right? So the best I can understand these verses, I believe this harkens back, to, and it, the best way to understand it would be harkening back to Christ's first coming now. Because we know at his second coming, it's going to be too late to repent, right? The Bible is very clear about that. When Christ returns, He's going to gather his own and he's going to judge his enemies and it's too late to make your choice then. The key is to be following Christ now. Recognizing that he is king over all now. And that he's graciously allowing entrance into his kingdom through repentance and faith. And so I believe this would harken back to his first coming. Right? People have seen. It's being declared even now throughout history how Christ has come and powerfully rescued his people. How Jesus defeated sin and death. How he secured salvation for all who believe. And so you here today in this room are hearing that again, right? That Jesus has powerfully come. That he's visited this world. That he entered into this chaos. Into this fallen world of evil and sin. And he powerfully rescued his people. That he defeated sin and death. That he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That he, is, that he rose again in victory. That he was exalted to the Father's right hand where he reigns now. That he's Lord and King now. And so the ball's in your court. Will you follow him? Each one of you must answer that for yourself. Will I follow the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Do I believe that he is king? Do I believe that he is savior? That he is the only way to the Father? 
Or am I just here because my parents make me be here? And as soon as I can, I'm, I'm out of here. Oh, loved one, or young person, or whoever is thinking that, don't, don't do that. This is not about your parents. This is about what's true. This is about what's real. Jesus is king over all. By God's grace, will you bow the knee to him today? He's a gracious king. He's a loving king. He's a forgiving king. Admit you're a sinner. Admit that you need rescued because you deserve God's wrath like we all do. And that you can't rescue yourself. But believe that he in his, in his kindness has provided that rescue. And so by faith embrace him as Lord and Savior. And then all the good things we've been talking about will be your future as well. Two outcomes, two choices, a fork in the road. Having seen or at least having heard of the power, of the deliverance, of the sovereignty of God and his Christ. Will you follow him? Will you turn from your sins and embrace him? Will you worship him or face, or will you instead choose to face his wrath in the end? Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Oh, the invitation goes out. Come. Be rescued. We have one final heading then. I've already kind of touched on it, kind of given it away a little bit, I guess. Complete holiness. Complete holiness in verses 20 and 21. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the houses of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Again, just all this language talking about cleansing and sanctifying everything. Right? The, even things that would be unclean and, and bells on horses that, that would have been used for war. All of that's going to be sanctified. Even pots that were everyday use, they're going to be just like the things that, are in, that were used in the temple. Holy, sanctified, pure, cleansed. The book of Zechariah, this oracle, the entire book ends with a picture of holiness spreading from God's presence among his people. Everything is being sanctified for the Lord, declared holy to the Lord. Everything that's evil and, and sinful, like traitor here, the footnote says Canaanite, whichever it is, it, 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 all that's being cleansed. All wickedness, idolatry, it's gone. We've seen that again and again in these visions. This prophecy looks forward to the time when God will return and everything impure will be removed from the temple and land. And so again, I close with just reading 
Revelation to you. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's us, all holy and cleansed. Perfectly sanctified for worshiping and enjoying our Lord. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Again, we've read it once before, but I close with it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street, also on the either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. One day we will worship the Lord together in complete holiness. No more hearts that are prone to wander. No more affections that so quickly stray. Complete devotion and holiness. What a day that will be. We get little tastes of it. But to experience the fullness of that, that's our future. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Until he comes. As we await his coming, remember, believer, Jesus is king over all. He has already defeated your enemies of sin and death. He has already rescued you from the wrath of God. He is sovereign over every circumstance that you're facing as you live in this fallen world. He's sovereign over every trial, over every suffering. He's with you in your suffering. He's helping you. He's strengthening you. He's refining you. He's using it for your good and his glory. And one day Jesus is coming again to rescue you from this fallen world once and for all. So be encouraged. And by God's grace, be faithful as you await his return. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we together just praise you and and, and declare in our hearts, you are king over all. What a mighty God you are. What a loving and faithful and gracious God you are. We long to see you. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. Please help us by your grace, by your word, to continually be sanctified now as we await your return.
May you continue to show your power over sin and evil by, by drawing many to yourself, in, even today and in the days ahead. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and sing of that great day when Christ returns.